right, here we go. Welcome to Picture Blurfect, everyone. I'm your host, Naomi Harlan-Bacchus-Wilkerson. Thanks so much for joining us today. We've got such a great episode for you today, Dr. Carolyn Becker of Trinity University. Before we get started, just a little bit of a life update for me, I guess. Just want to share a little bit on what's my on what's on my heart and mind, if I can get the words out. Uh, I'm just getting back from a work trip over from California. So the work conference was in Palm Springs, California, which is apparently where Coachella is at. I had no idea. Anyway, I never really get to go to California. So this is like my second time, like versus just like layovers and stuff, which is that doesn't really count. But I was there for a work trip like in 2015 or 16. And then I went back for work. So this is a problem. I've only been to California for work, which which is kind of it's so it's such a beautiful state, right? Like the climate is wonderful. It's really dry air. It's always sunny. It was like 30 degrees here in Washington, D.C., which is where I live. And it was like 90 degrees, a really dry, wonderful air. And you can just sit out there and enjoy being outside without like melting. So I really enjoyed, you know, the the sightseeing aspect of it uh, when I wasn't doing work stuff. Um, And I'm just going to say, like, traveling for me, and I'm sure, like, many of you go through this as well. Like, it's just when I'm not in my routine, I get really anxious. Um, And that I I recognize that I'm I'm super tight A. I own that. I fully embrace it at the same time because that's just who I am. And, you know, you got to, like, work around it and figure out, you know, what 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 makes you tick and what are the things that are going to trigger you and how do you prevent that and at the same time challenge yourself to kind of think outside of the box sometimes. Um, so with, you know, an eating disorder, it's, it can be really difficult as far as traveling because it's like, what am I going to eat all the time? And that used to be really hard for me in the past. And I'm not going to lie, this past trip, this was my first time traveling in a long time alone. Typically, I have my husband with me who is just, you know, my biggest champion and my biggest supporter. And he always, you know, knows what, what I need even without saying anything. He's just perfect that way. Um, So when I'm alone, I was actually really scared going into the trip because I thought, oh, I'm just gonna like listen to that eating disorder voice and maybe kind of cheat here and there and skip a snack or, you know, sneak in a workout when I should just be relaxing and enjoying this time and not really worrying about those kinds of things. But actually, I did such a good job, you guys. I'm actually proud of myself because I didn't give in to that eating disorder voice. And more than that, the voice itself was way quieter than it typically is, especially when I'm traveling and not in my normal routine. So I even one day just went to the the pool and just sat there reading my book and enjoying myself. And I have never been able to have like the confidence to do that. Just say, you know what? I'm going to go to the pool. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy it and people watch. And I love doing that. And I'm glad that I did that. So that was really new for me. And I came back, was telling my husband all this. And he was like, you know, you should be really proud of yourself. That's, that's big. That's big for you to not have to like feel like you are owned by the eating disorder voice. So I'm really, really happy uh, from that regard. And I just wanted to share because I'm sure many of you have have experienced that too in your recovery and it's ups and downs every trip is not going to be the same so I, I was really happy especially since I was alone but anyway aside from the fact that I've never been to California other than for work purposes and that I did a fairly good job being by myself um Back to the episode. Today, we have Dr. Carolyn Becker of Trinity University. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and researcher over in San Antonio there. And she is just such a delight to talk to you. I hope you all can really like hear her personality throughout the interview. It's just really wonderful. I'd love to just sit and have a beer with her. She just seems so nice. And she's so knowledgeable. And what I really love about her is she's challenging this field of eating disorder voice, not only like in the sense of like eating disorder stereotypes, Types, which we get into in the episode, but like how we think about researching eating disorders. So what we talk about today is food insecurity and how that influences eating disorder pathology. And what does even that mean? Like, you know, like when going into this episode, I didn't even fully understand what food insecurity is, which is essentially not having reliable access to food. And that can often really affect certain underrepresented minorities and other marginalized populations more than 
the typical white wealthy people. And how does that then translate into eating disorder behaviors, which there is a relationship. And she has done a lot of digging and a lot of research into this and what we can learn about from it, how we can apply clinical uh, practices for it in, in the future. And what does this mean as far as like how we think about food insecurity, policy proposals and and how like poverty and how we think about treating human beings? Um, and so it was just it was just so fascinating. And I, I really encourage you to listen to the entire episode because she really defines what food insecurity means at the outset, what her research has entailed, what she's has been finding and what she hopes to find in the future, because a lot of what she does really will influence um, five to 10 years from now, how the eating disorder field is going to shape up. So it really comes at a pivotal moment in the eating disorder research field. And another thing we talk about is eating disorder stereotypes. You know, typically for the longest time, eating disorders were thought to have only affected young, thin, white, wealthy women. And that's just completely false, right? And we need to continue challenging those stereotypes. And Dr. Becker does such a great job really outlining, you know what? It happens to literally everyone. And we need to talk about it and we need to research it and figure out, what are the differences across these different groups, but also the similarities and what can we learn from that research? So it was just a, such a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And I'm going to stop talking now so we can get right into the interview with Dr. Carolyn Becker. Right. We are here with Dr. Carolyn Becker. Welcome to Picture Blurfect. We'll start off with a super easy question. Uh, just introduce yourself for the audience, you know, like your educational background, your current position and your research interests. Okay, so um, I am a professor of psychology at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. I clarify that because there's lots of trinities. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist. My areas of interest are eating disorders, anxiety disorders. Um, I also have a strong background in post-traumatic stress disorder, um, exposure therapy, and um, the implementation of um, scientifically supported interventions in clinical settings. Um, my, in terms of my education, I did my undergraduate work at Swarthmore College, another liberal arts college. I'm a big fan of the liberal arts college model. Um, Rutgers University um, for my doctoral degree. I did my clinical internship at Brown and my postdoctoral fellowship at Dartmouth. And then I made my way south to the warmer right. location of Texas. Wow, that, that's awesome. That's wonderful. So how did you become interested in the field of like eating disorders and, and anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder? Right. So eating disorders really goes back to my undergraduate days. Um, I'm going to be really like authentic here and say I forgot to put my phone on silent. So I'm going <laughs> to <laughs> before it rings in the middle of this. Um, so eating disorders goes back to my undergraduate days at Swarthmore College. Um, I was a psychology, sociology, anthropology, double major, um, which is kind of ironic because I always tell my students, don't be a double major, nobody cares. But those were the things that interested me. I also had a strong interest in biology and um, I went most of the way in a women's studies concentration. Um, and when I combined all of those interests, it's like all of it was wrapped up in eating disorders. You know, I could study everything I wanted in one topic. Yeah. Um, that was really where the interest came from. It really was academic. Of course, I certainly had or knew people with eating disorders um, and they were, they were interesting, but really the, the primary driver of my interest in eating disorders was, was sort of very academic, getting to study Lots of things that I was interested in all wrapped up in one area. Um, anxiety came along later. I was at Rutgers University and I looked around at the faculty and I observed that everybody who seemed to be doing really well had more than one area. And I thought I should expand into anxiety disorder. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really just sort of a modeling type of thing. Um, and anxiety interested me. And then and it's been great because the interplay across them has often right. helped me, you know, um, identify interesting questions. Um, and, and clinically, it, it works really well to have expertise in both. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I, that's funny you say uh, about double majors because I was a, a psychology and math double major and people like are just like, why? 
<laughs> I just like I just enjoyed math, but so I was like I took enough classes and got a double major. But so that's funny that you said that. that. That's the reason I tell students to do. I said only do it if you love the topic so much. Right. You're just going to take the classes anyway, which is what I did. So I wasn't like I need a double major. So I'm I'm always talking students out of it, even though I did it. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm in the same mind. Um, so a lot of your current work focuses on the relationship between food insecurity and eating disorder pathology. So can you explain, because that's not talked about a lot. Can you explain what is meant by food insecurity? Sure. So food insecurity refers to the condition in which you don't have sufficient quantity and or high quality um, food. So you may not have enough food, just pure in terms of calories. Um, so you just truly have insufficient amount of food. But often it also means that the quality of your diet is truly substandard. So it may be that you can only afford to buy really low quality food in order to get any kind of volume in terms of your food. Um, you know, in contrast, somebody with food security is going to have really reliable access to sufficient and quality um, nutrition um, for a for you know for a good life, both in terms of pleasure and in terms of overall health. Um, as you said, eating disorders and food insecurity—that's not sort of something that's commonly um, talked about. And so I'll just I'll drag us on a funny little tangent here. Yeah, um, sure. How we started studying this because people were like, when I first started telling people, I'm like, we're studying eating disorders and food insecurity, and literally everybody in the field looked at me like I had two heads on, like they were something like, how do we do that? Long <laughs> <laughs> topic. Um, and the way that it came about, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a professor at a liberal arts college. Um, um, and if you come to Trinity University, we have these things called first year experiences. And so as a first year student, first semester, you're going to take a six credit hour course, typically taught by two faculty. Um, but that is usually one section of a broader course. So it might have like three sections. So it might be, you know, 45 students and three sections of 15 and six different faculty teaching it. Anyway, I taught in a course called Food Matters um, that I helped design. Um, we joking, those of us who designed it jokingly said, this is like how you study almost anything you want to study under one four-letter word, food, because it hits almost every discipline out there. And I was partnered with... Um, uh, Dr. Keisha Middlemass, who was at Trinity at the time, but is now at Howard University and the Brookings Institute. Um, and we had a great time teaching together. She was a qualitative social scientist. Um, and I also had two students who came to me and said, hey, Dr. Becker, we want to do research with you. But this other stuff you're typically doing, which was very body image focused. I did a lot of partnership with sororities. They're like, we're not at all interested in that. We want to go and work with marginalized people in the city of San Antonio. And I was sort of jumbling all of this in my head because um, Dr. Middlemass and I wanted to do some research together. And um, one day while I was walking my dogs, this is like where I do my best thinking or where I get into the most trouble is when I'm walking my dogs and my brain's just sort of chewing stuff over. Um, it suddenly occurred to me that people who live with food insecurity, who are both in food deserts, meaning that they don't have good access to good quality grocery stores. You know, they may not even be able to buy the food that they would like to buy without traveling a significant distance. They also typically live in food swamps, meaning that the food that is available is typically highly palatable food. So high in salt, sugar, and fat, um, and low in nutrition quality. So they're in food desert and food swamps. They undergo periods of dietary restriction. And I was thinking about relevant literature um, and I was suddenly like, wait a minute, people with food insecurity who undergo periods of dietary restriction, forced in this case, should be at elevated risk for binge eating. Um, we've known that since the Minnesota starvation study conducted back in the 1940s, um, that if you undergo periods of semi-starvation, that you could be at increased risk for binge eating. Um, so I was like, they should be binge eating. Um, and then it also occurred to me there is significant animal research out there suggesting that highly palatable food can drive binge eating. So I was suddenly like, people with food insecurity should be binge eating, like according to these two separate literatures. So I asked my students to go do a literature search and there was virtually nothing. And that was why we started looking at it. So it was literally driven right out of the liberal arts college background, sort of organic yeah. you know, research. No, that's, that's really fantastic. And just the process of how it all came to be, I really enjoy hearing about that. And it shows that there's such a significant gap in what we know about, about food insecurity. So you touched on it a little bit, but in general, I guess, why is it so, why is it important to study this food insecurity and eating disorders? 
So I think, you know, stepping back, um, eating disorders have historically been perceived as a disorder of thin, white, at least moderately affluent women and girls, like, yep. and, and typically young, we, we think girls right. and women. So there's a really profound stereotype about who gets an eating disorder. And it exists not just in the sort of general public lay view of eating disorders, but it also has historically existed in much of the profession. Indeed, that was the reason I think that people sort of looked at me like, why are you studying eating disorders in a majority Hispanic, low income, you know, population, much of which is going to be I mean, in higher weight bodies um, that didn't fit this, it like violated the stereotype in just about right. possible. Um, and I think that's actually the reason we need to be doing it is that there is compelling evidence at this point that the eating disorder stereotype is a myth. It's simply wrong. Eating, eating disorders, as we like to say in the field, do not discriminate. They, um, they go out, you know, you find them in every type of gender. You find them in every racial ethnic category. You find them globally. Um, it's just that we so selectively focused our research into the stereotype. So much, much of these research literature is based in that stereotypical population. Um, many of our Treatments were predominantly developed with that stereotypical uh, population. Most yes. of our assessment measures were heavily tested in that stereotypical <sighs> population. Clinically, we know that clinicians are more likely to identify an eating disorder if it shows up in the stereotypical population. If yes. you are a member of the stereotypical population, you are more likely to identify yourself as having an eating disorder. So I think really the reason it's important to study um, the intersection of food insecurity and eating disorders is because, you know, there's there's no reason to think that food insecurity, which destabilizes eating, and poverty, which goes hand in hand with food insecurity, would somehow be protective against some form of mental illness. But right. why, why would we think that? Why would we think that being impoverished and being marginalized would protect you against mental illness? It doesn't protect you against any other form of mental illness. Right. So why would it protect you against eating disorders? And it doesn't. But basically, prior to the paper that we published in 2017, there was scant research on eating disorders and food insecurity. Lots of focus on obesity. People are very concerned about obesity in impoverished populations. Um, yeah. But aside from one question here or, you know, some, you know, scattered items there sort of aimed at the fuzzy category of disordered eating, there was no real focus on like, do we see people with food insecurity reporting the cardinal features of an eating disorder? And indeed, once we asked them, they said yes. Yeah. <laughs> are relatively high rates of it. Yeah. So, so, yeah, dig into that a little bit. What exactly has like your lab found? Like, what's the connection between food insecurity right. and eating disorders? So, what we found is that, so, um, what we found is that basically that as food insecurity worsens, so, so really to date, um, all of our research has been conducted with the San Antonio Food Bank. And I've got to give them a shout out because they are an amazing organization. Um, they are just, they just, they, you know, they serve, um, Many counties in South Texas, they have over 500 partners, you know, they provide millions and millions of meals every year. Um, and they're just, they're just, they, I mean, people don't even realize they like have their own orchard. They have a wow. greenhouse. 40% of the food that they distribute is perishable. So this is not just, you know, providing people with canned goods. Like they, they do a truly phenomenal job and they have partnered with us from day one in the research that we've done. So great shout out to the San Antonio Food Bank. Um, so we studied all, all of our research has been done in people who are seeking services, either from local pantries, which historically have distributed food for the San Antonio Food Bank, or from San Antonio Food Bank itself through client services. So the San Antonio Food Bank doesn't just provide food. It helps people access government benefits. It helps people find jobs. Um, they help people coming out of incarceration, um, develop very wow. skills. They have a catering company. Like they're just an amazing organization. Wow. So our samples have not sort of compared food insecurity to not food to, to food secure. Everybody in our studies is on some continuum of food insecurity. So, and it, it grades from those who are sort of on the margins of food security and food insecurity, like they're seeking support from the San Antonio Food Bank or they're mm -hmm. looking for food from 
um, a food pantry, meaning they're obtaining food in, in less than socially acceptable ways. Um, and they're not reporting that they're hungry and they're not reporting that their diet is overly limited, but they're, they're clearly on those margins. And then we look at, and then the next level up in terms of food insecurity in our samples um, are people who report a lot of anxiety about sourcing food. They don't know if they're going to have enough food. They, um, they're, they're eating the same thing over and over. The quality of their diet isn't going to be high, but they're not reporting that anyone in the household is actually going truly hungry. Then the next group, as we move up that severity continuum, are people who are reporting that the adults in the household are going hungry, but there are no hungry children. So these can be individuals who are don't have children and have enough food to stave off hunger, but are not having a good quality diet um, and are, are tremendously worried about where their food is going to be coming from. Um, or they're individuals who have children and they're managing, whether it's through school nutrition programs or their um, um they're, uh, or actually I should have said in the previous group, they are hungry. The adults are reporting hunger. So they, um, the, or through school nutrition, there are no hungry children, but there are hungry adults in the household. And then the final category is when you have hungry children in the household. And the presumption is that if you have truly hungry children in the household, that the adults are going to be even more hungry because most adults will sure. save food to provide food for children. So it's that child hunger household group that is the most severe level of food insecurity. And what we see as we look in this sample that in our samples that look at this continuum of food insecurity from the margins to hungry children at home is that as food insecurity gets worse, um, eating disorder pathology worsens. That we see more binge eating, we see more night eating with distress. Surprisingly, this is one area where we did not expect it. We see more vomiting behavior. Um, really? engaging in self in self-induced vomiting to a greater degree we see worse feelings about the body we see greater restriction planned restriction of their intake so they're reporting things like going eight or more waking hours without eating um, or deliberately trying to not eat food even when it's available maybe because they're saving it for kids um, and we also see more anxiety and we see more depression um, so that as so that as food insecurity gets worse um, even though all of our populations were impoverished, that food insecurity is correlated with worse eating disorder symptoms, worse anxiety, worse depression, and worse intentional dietary restraint. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, related to that, I guess, do you also see maybe abuse of laxatives? Like, do you, do you have that data at all? We do have that data. And in our first sample, it definitely looked like it got worse and it did get worse in all the samples. It was more dramatic in our first study. Our, the results from our first study were sort of so striking that we then conducted a second study to see if it replicated. Cause of course the hard yeah. replication, everything replicated. So it does get worse. Everything gets worse basically as wow. you go that continuum. Um, but it didn't get, it wasn't as dramatic in our second study as our first study okay um, yeah they also report using laxatives and you know there again um although we assessed it um you know we said do you do this um you know um you know we don't know why they're doing it um so you know it, it could also be that they're using more laxatives because the quality of their diet is worse um yeah. but the vomiting piece was really really surprising that is and this is all self-reported right the the level of food insecurity okay this is all self-report these are all survey studies so all the caveats that go along with surveys sure. are absolutely there um but we you know i since we started doing this research i have increasingly heard from the grassroots eating disorders community um where people talk about that they grew up with food insecurity and then ended up with an eating disorder or that that the that food insecurity in their minds looking back played an issue um in addition in clinics that treat um lower income populations so when we when we look at some of the um eating disorder centers that do take medicaid um, they report that actually once they started asking about food insecurity, it was at a much higher level than they had realized. Um, wow. So I think one of the challenges is that people who, even if they manage to get into treatment, and that's a huge hurdle, we know that the treatment gaps uh, is what we call it, the gap between those who could benefit from treatment and those who actually get treatment. We know it is huge for mental health generally, but it is particularly large for eating disorders. And undoubtedly that, stereotype contributes to that um, that I talked about earlier. But we do, when we talk to people who are working with 
more marginalized, lower income populations. They said once our research got them to start asking people, they were like shocked at the level of food insecurity that was there, wow. which really wow. presents a problem for treatment recovery because yeah. providing people saying, well, you have to eat regularly, but you can't afford to eat regularly, then right. that's really destabilizing. Right. Right. And you touched on this a little bit, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. This issue of like dietary restraint, where when you think of dietary restraint, when you intentionally restrict food, you think of classic like anorexia. But some people do it as your a lot of your studies have shown do it, you know, not to lose weight or to change their size. They're doing it to save food for perhaps their children. So have you done specific studies on like dietary restraint and, and the, the risk of eating disorders there? Yeah. So, so here I got to do, you know, big shout out to my colleague, uh, Dr. Middlemass, because of course she's the qualitative researcher. So I don't know what I'm doing with qualitative data. But <laughs> does. So, you know, um, if we look at how dietary restraint is typically assessed in the eating disorders field, that stereotype, once again, rears its ugly head. So if we look at the majority of dietary restraint measures, what they say is, are you doing this to in change your shape or weight or for control reasons? Um, so literally baked into the measures is this stereotype, because the reason that thin affluent women and white women and girls typically restrict is for weight and shape or control reasons. So we literally ask the questions in ways that field right into the, um, yeah. into the stereotype. What we did in our first study was we said, um, you know, do you go eight or more weeks hours without eating? Do you um, purposefully limit foods that you enjoy eating? Like do you don't eat them on purpose and do you um, uh, skip meals on purpose? So we asked them about these restraint behaviors, but we took out the caveat for weight and shape or control reasons. And yeah. we said, why? Why are you doing this? And then a number of people responded. And then um, uh, Dr. Middlemass and um, our students then did a lovely qualitative analysis of this. And what we saw is that relatively few, I mean, like less than 5%, I think it was, um, relatively few, certainly less than 10% of the people in our sample were saying that they were restricting for the traditional reasons. They weren't restricting for weight and shape control reasons. Um, they, were, they were restricting for financial reasons. They were restricting because they needed to save money for medication. They needed to save money for housing. They needed to pay for electricity. They were trying to... Um, you know, stretch food. Um, what we really saw, though, in that in that you know really concerning group. So, if we look at you know the, the as I said before, eating disorder, pathology, depression, anxiety, everything goes up in a linear fashion. Lowest in the group that is on the margins, highest in this child hunger household group. What I didn't say earlier is it really shoots up in this child hunger household group. That this is really the group that is most concerning, and it was in that group that we really see the emergence of this, I'm not eating food when it's available to save it for my kids. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really starting to wonder is that dietary restraint when there's literally no food in the household. So like there's not, you can be wandering around, there's, there's nothing to eat. That doesn't take a whole lot of cognitive resources. That doesn't, that's not, that's not self-imposed. There, there's just nothing to eat. If there's nothing to eat, you can't eat it. What's what's been interesting always about the association of self-reported dietary restraint and eating disorders is we know from other research that it's not necessarily linked to people actually being food starved. So there are other studies where they walk around and follow people with high dietary restraint and they see that they're they're not they're not like starving themselves, but they are they are trying to restrict when food is available. And I think what we what we are currently hypothesizing is that what may be going on in this child hunger household group that puts them at such high risk for eating disorders is that they are, even when food is available, the adults are literally using that cognitive restraint to not eat it because they're trying to save it for their kids. And it is that restricting when food is available, that may be the most problematic form of restriction. Mm. They're, but they're doing it for very different reasons than someone who is affluent. You know, I, I, I'm not going to restrict because I want to feed kids because I can just pay to feed the kids. So um, they're doing it because they're, they're trying to preserve food for their families. And what we're thinking now um, is that it is this intentional restriction when food is available that may be problematic for whatever reason. Oh my gosh, that's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. That is just, it is heartbreaking. It's, oh, that is so well, sad. And 
Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, when we first when we first analyzed the data from our first study, I remember calling Dr. Middlemass and just saying, you have got to come over and see this because this is both the prettiest data in terms of like, like mailing hypotheses. Straight line. Straight line. <laughs> and the saddest data that I have ever seen. Like, this is just like heartbreaking data, um, which I think is all the more reason to get it out there. It was, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a heartbreaking story that needed to be told so that we can exactly. start figure out how do we help these people. Exactly. And I think like going back to like when you were first talking about it, the flaws in our assessment tools of like how it just like fed into the stereotype of like what dietary restraint actually is. So that just means like, do we need an overhaul of all of our assessment tools of eating disorders? But that's a whole other other episode, really. Um, But the fact like so. I know there needs to be a lot more studies to be done and replicated, but like, where do we go from here? How can this data really help the treatment plans that clinicians use? Right. So, so the good news is, is since we published that paper, um, you know, it's, it like lots of people have jumped on the bandwagon in terms of research. Great. So I know that you had uh, looked at that paper that um, uh, first author is Vivian Hazard, um, which was a new paper that we did um, looking at all the research that has come out. And, you know, literally in just three years, like the research just exploded, which was really So that was very exciting. So I think, you know, we're, we're getting more research and people are starting to ask, you know, more and more interesting questions. Clearly, we need longitudinal research. We need more qualitative research to break things down. But I think we're already seeing clinicians responding to this information by first and foremost starting to ask. Like that, that's the first step, you know, we need to start asking people, you know, do you have a food insecurity? Do you, um, do you currently have food insecurity? You know, that's just part of the clinical picture. Um, so even if we don't have clear research spelling everything out, if we want to understand people's history of food um, and how their relationship with food um, developed, you know, you also have to recognize that people with Food insecurity, as I mentioned earlier, are by definition impoverished. And of course, poverty is correlated with living in a higher weight body. And of course, higher weight bodies are inherently stigmatized in our culture. Um, So they're also going to have, in many cases, received pressure, whether it's from society at large or teasing and bullying as as kids or, um, you know, or, or even pressure from medical um, professionals, because we know that the medical profession is a highly weight stigmatizing area. So one of the things I'm really interested in right now is looking at how is weight stigma playing out in this very, very vulnerable population. So because of the nature of the diet that they have, because um, we know that race and ethnicity, which produces different body types to, you know, to Caucasian or white body types, um, you know, those, those individuals, um, you know, and, and again, lack of ability to buy certain food, living in environments that constrain exercise, um, racial, um, ethnic, and all sorts of other discrimination, which can increase propensity for weight gain through, you know, increased cortisol. So we've got a population that through multiple intersecting identities is going to be at higher risk for being in higher weight bodies, which then puts them at risk for weight stigma. Yet one more form of discrimination that we're just going to pile on top of all yeah. of that. And of course, all of that's going to increase risk for eating disorders. Um, And so I think, you know, I think where we're at is, you know, just as the field and I think psychology generally is is really coming to a, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion and access, um, you know, reckoning. Um, I think sort of what we're seeing here is, you know, recognizing that we've really got to clinically pay more attention to all of the intersecting identities and particularly all of the intersecting ways that someone can be marginalized and the way that that in turn plays out in terms of impacting someone's struggles, whether it be with depression or anxiety or eating disorders, you know, any form of, um, you know, mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. That was literally one of my other questions is it's like your work between like food insecurity and internalized weight stigma. It's just like, it keeps piling on, like you said, and that's just, 
Wow. That's just crazy. So this is kind of, it might be a dumb question, but how much does the state of the economy and like now, like post pandemic with, you know, now inflation is at an all time high. Like how does that play a role here? Well, it's just, it's going to worsen food insecurity. I mean, you know, we're, we're about to see, I think we're about to globally see food insecurity, like worsen in so many different ways. So um, obviously we have pandemic driven and well, okay. Let's talk about tons of people lost their jobs. Yeah. Yes, the economy has come back and it's been great that we have lots and lots of jobs. But, you know, between the fact that schools have been erratic, you know, we still have what they're calling the she recession or the she session, I think is what they call it. A lot of women haven't haven't gone back to work because there's no child care. There are a lot of people who are still concerned about going back to jobs that seem high COVID risk. Understandably, they may have health concerns, all of that. Um, We know that marginalized people um, obviously got hit by COVID much harder. Um, so, you know, there, there was a market increase in food insecurity during the pandemic. Um, we now have, you know, supply chain. Lord knows how long it's going to take uh, for supply chains to get them sorted out. I mean, the, the supply chain mess, this is, you know, and it's been broken for a while. And, and I don't think anybody's going to be able to magically easily fix the supply chain issues. Right. So that, that driver of inflation is going to make it, you know, make it easier to end up struggling with food insecurity if you're on, on that on that edge. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, with the war in the Ukraine, we now have, you know, a, a, an additional pressure on gas prices. Right. Um, and that's, that's going to, again, for families that have to, particularly in somewhere like San Antonio, where everybody drives places, um, you know, this is, this is not a very well public, we don't have great um, public transportation infrastructure here. We have some, but it's not outstanding. So, um, Gas prices are going to put new financial pressure on families. Um, and then what I think, you know, is often missed in the coverage of the war on the Ukraine. Um, and I don't know how much that'll, this will affect us in the U.S., but I would think anything that affects global wheat prices or global food commodity prices is yeah. going to affect us. So I don't know how we would remain completely immune from it. Um, and the reality is, is that prior to being extensively bombed, the Ukraine produced a tremendous amount of food. Um, people don't realize that it was in fact a breadbasket. It was, it's a high food producing region. Um, and wow. so that's probably going to worsen food insecurity globally. Um, and oh, and I think it's pressures. so yeah, I mean, it's just like, like one thing after another. Um, and all of this is going to hit people at the lower economic spectrum, the hardest. Yeah. And that just makes me think like, what are the policies that we need in place to to not only be proactive, but to, to help people currently? And that's just, that's so hard to answer. Yeah. Um, and well, I one guess thing we- that, will, that I always say when I give these talks is like, if you're sort of like, you know, I mean, obviously everybody right now is figuring out how do we support the Ukraine, yeah. but as things worsen globally, right. Um, you for food insecurity and i i will be surprised if the u.s remains immune from this um and and we're not i mean we're a high-income country that has a tremendous amount of food insecurity even in the best of times exactly we're never immune from it um the thing that i always like to tell people give dollars to your local food bank don't do a food drive give dollars your local food bank buys wholesale you buy retail what my, uh, my food bank can stretch $1 into seven meals. I can't stretch a dollar into seven meals. My food bank can stretch a dollar way further than me. So while I understand the tangible, you know, nice feeling of doing a food drive, um, you know, and, and I wouldn't say, you know, make them go away if it means in turn you don't do anything. But sure. whenever possible, just give money raise money for food banks because they it also actually reduces their labor interestingly so when we when we when we find when we bring in food they're very grateful for the food that food all has to be sorted um and it has to be like put on different pallets and reorganized that takes volunteer labor but even if it's volunteer labor you have to have a paid labor to organize the volunteer labor whereas if they can just buy what they need wholesale it comes in in pallets. It needs less organization. That means less staff. That means less overhead. So one of the things I always use whenever I do one of these talks in whatever setting, I just use this as my little propaganda moment. Uh, <laughs> give give dollars to your local food bank. They can make it more than you can. 
I love that. I'm going to definitely include that note in the episode description too. That's so important. And I didn't, I didn't know that. And I'm sure many people listening don't know that either. I, I don't think until I like delved into this, you know, and suddenly, you know, I mean, it, I first for the, for the course that I taught the food matters course, I was like, wow, I, there's so much about food that I didn't know. Um, but I think it's really important for people in the eating disorders field in any aspect of food to sort of understand how food systems work and how we support people at the lower ends of yeah. um, economic spectrum. And, um, and yeah, and once I learned more about food banks, I was like, it's, it's dollars. It's like, yeah. it's really, so I'll go to my local grocery store, which is a big supporter of, um, of, uh, the food bank and 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 the, the grocery store chain in San Antonio is HEB and they're like really really amazing grocery store chain like they get all these awards and you know when a hurricane comes in they get up fat they get back up and running faster than FEMA or Walmart like they're amazing oh. but when I show up there and they're like would you like to buy a case of water for some for like something I'm like uh I could just give the ten dollars to the food bank and I'll bet they'll manage to come up with way more than one case of water yeah. so I'm you know, always like give money directly to the food bank that's that's I love that. That's a, that's perfect advice. I love it. So I want to transition because you you've mentioned it like sprinkled throughout our talk already is like more to like eating disorder stereotypes. So we talked about how I think the most common one is, you know, that it affects women and, and white people only. But like, are there other misconceptions about stereo eating disorders that that come to mind that, you know, in reality is just not true that you think listeners should know? Um, well, age, um, you know, yeah. the predominantly problem for people who are younger, um, you know, we, there's, um, my, uh, colleague, Lisa Capella at the, um, health science center here in San Antonio was doing really fascinating research. You might want to do a podcast with her. Um, she was doing awesome. really fascinating research with older women. Um, wow. so the idea that this is, that this is a younger person problem and not a pr problem for older individuals, I think is another stereotype. Um, as you've mentioned before, but we haven't really harped on it. The female aspect of it, the gendered aspect of it is really big. And yet, you know, there are researchers doing great work looking at eating disorders in males, um, you know, increasingly looking at, um, you know, gender, um, you know, non-binary gender or transgender, um, yeah. high risk. Um, so I think really, um, and then obviously the racial ethnic stereotypes, I mean, really every aspect of that stereotype, if you think about it, it just says it, and, 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 and this idea of affluence that, you know, we had previously sort of been like, oh, it's in this like little pot of people and everybody right. else is sort of not at risk. I think now we're sort of like, oh, yeah, no, it's it's all over everywhere. and everywhere, and it just and it may look a little different, um, but it but it is everywhere, um, and and it's really just important to get that idea out because individuals who don't conform to the stereotype often don't think they have an eating disorder because they think a pro they don't fit the stereotype, um, right? And we need clinicians to do a better job of identifying it, people who are not stereotypical, higher weight bodies huge problem so yeah. you're a higher weight pot body and you are presenting with all the behaviors of anorexia nervosa there's a very good chance that you will be praised for those behaviors there's a very good chance that you'll be told keep it up good job yeah the fact that you are suffering from what we would call atypical anorexia nervosa you mean you have anorexia nervosa your body just biologically resists dropping down to a weight that worries our society. And so, and because we are such a weight stigmatizing society, you, you could be reinforced for continuing your eating disorder. In fact, medical professionals might even tell you, you know, you could be showing bradycardia, you could be showing all sorts of signs of malnutrition, and you might still be encouraged to just keep it up. So I think, you know, the issue of it being of, you know, eating disorders and higher weight bodies is really important. Yeah, no, I, 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 I need to do an episode completely on that because there's just so much out there and it's just so common. Um, and like I went to a doctor just recently for I have really bad arthritis in my feet and they were like, well, you know, what's good for arthritis is just lose weight. And, you know, I'm sitting there like I just told you my medical history, like out of like transparency and you just told me to lose weight. Like it's just it just blows my mind. Yeah, the the met, the weight stigma in the medical profession, and and it's problematic in the mental health profession too. Like I'm not exempting yeah. us ways, but the the weight stigma is just so pervasive, um, and it's so problematic because 
as you said, look, you look at your history and they're telling you lose weight. That's a good idea. Um, yeah, I know it was, it was awful. Um, so well, like, what can we do like as researchers, as advocates, how can we better communicate the truth and reality to just like beat down these, these misconceptions and these stereotypes? I think it's just literally, it's sort of like shattered from the rooftop everywhere. Yeah. We can. You know, it's, it's going to be, you know, um, in, in our papers, you know, researchers doing a better job of sampling broader, you know, groups of individuals of, of really taking a second look at our measures and asking them, are they limiting us in terms of understanding? Um, we're trying to do a very messy study right now, looking at dietary restraint, trying to understand all the reasons why people might consciously choose to restrict their eating because there's actually a lot of reasons why people like yeah. might restrict their eating and and again going back to 1940s research by ansel keys in the minnesota starvation study doesn't look like it matters why you do it it doesn't matter if you do it for science or you do it to protect your kids or you do it for weight and shape concerns if you restrict your intake sufficiently you, you're at risk for an eating disorder you know and if we look at areas um in silicon valley they have biohacking um, where they talk about doing this for, you know, to, to streamline um, the, the messiness of having to eat. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, so there's, there's biohacking, and that is, that is typically a more male form of restriction from what I've read. It, it's, I've not read anything super scientific on it. But um, we're, and of course, you know, religion can encourage people to restrict at times. Um, and so I think there's, there's all sorts of reasons why people engage in dietary restriction. We don't really understand them because we've been so focused on the reasons that our stereotype population raises. Yeah. Um, so... Oh my gosh. So that, that goes, n lends nicely itself to the, the next question. What would you like to see accomplished in the next like five years when it comes to research on food insecurity, research on eating disorder stereotypes, all of that? Um, I, so on eating disorder stereotypes, I just want to see us like blow it up every way possible. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, I just like to see us like rip it apart and really yes. get the message out there that eating disorders don't discriminate, that they, that, you know, anybody can end up with an eating disorder. Um, and that this is, you know, like any other form of mental illness that can happen in, in, you know, all sorts of different types of people. Um, so I think that's what I'd like to see happen with the eating disorder stereotype in five yes. years. I would like people to go, I would like someone to look at me quizzically and go, well, why would anybody think that eating disorders were a problem for white women in particular? Like I was yes. baffled why we would have ever thought that. Um, in terms of, you know, the food insecurity research, I really think what we need is longitudinal research and qualitative research. We really need to not walk in with too many assumptions that we know what, what, the lived experiences are of people with food insecurity. Um, I think we really need a lot of qualitative research. We need um, the funding to, um, you know, ask the questions that will help us better understand the way these things come together. You know, you can really hypothesize that there, you know, can be really cyclical relationships here. So for instance, Food insecurity leads me to, um, you know, restrict my intake to preserve food for children. As a result, I'm at risk for binge eating and losing control over my eating. So maybe that means that I then binge eat uncontrollably on food that I was planning to save. So now I'm experiencing mm -hmm. shame and guilt, yes. this, which is going to increase any kind of mental health distress that I'm under. Um, but it's also going to have potentially worsened the food insecurity in my house. But the fact that I, that I am losing control over my eating may make it harder to manage the food um, that I have, um, which in terms, if that worsens the food insecurity may mean worsen the control, worsen. So I think you can think about lots of ways that these things play together. We haven't done the research yet to figure out, like, what are the different patterns? What are the different trajectories? Um, you know, my research only shows that these things are correlated. You know, which came first? Does eating disorders drive food insecurity? Does food insecurity drive eating disorders? Is it all, you know, a factor of poverty? I, I don't think it's all a factor of poverty because all of our sample was impoverished and we certainly saw it worse in the yeah. group. So I don't think it's purely an issue of poverty. We have to understand, like, what 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 are the relationships you know there's there's research out of um people who work with vikram patel have shown that treating mental illness in people who are impoverished um this is research done typically in pakistan or, or india that addressing mental health problems in people who are impoverished actually does help poverty um and wow. that improve so i think we really need to sort of 
devote yeah. ourselves to doing a better job of understanding the mental life, um, the psychological experiences of people with food insecurity. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's just, there's a long way to go, but there's the yeah. fact that there are the stepping stones in place to try yeah. and get there. That's, that's so, so important. So I, I will wrap up here with just one right. final question. I'll, again, thank you so much for your time. This, this has been a lot of fun, but so what would be one piece of advice for maybe someone out there that's listening and perhaps they are feeling like they are on this spectrum that you talked about. They are feeling they have this food insecurity and they are having some binge eating episodes, but, and they want to seek help and they want to get better. Like, what is your advice for, for that person? Like, how can they take that step? Right. So, well, one great step that you can always take is to reach out to the National Eating Disorders um, uh, Association. So, the NIDA hotline. Mm-hmm. So, um, the National Eating Disorders Association um, maintains a hotline to help people, help connect people with resources, um, sort of talk through those initial steps. So, you know, I, I prefer to keep it like really, really simple. Just pick up the phone. Um, yeah go ahead and call Nita's 1-800 number um, and, and go ahead and, you know, talk to somebody um, in, terms getting, in terms of getting that assistance. Um, I think that's really, you know, there, there are online resources out there, absolutely. Um, but I think that that in some ways is just sort of the easiest thing that you can really do. Um, and, and they can help sort of guide you through that process of, you yeah. know, steps um but if you're in a if you're in a situation you know where you've got some support you know you can also talk to loved ones um you know and share with what you're struggling um you know hopefully they will be receptive and understanding many many more people are receptive and understanding than people think um but if they're not and you really are like i need someone who understands what's going on i think the need a hotline is just a great place to start Yeah, absolutely. I love that so much. Oh my gosh. I learned so much today and thank you again so much for your time. And we definitely like appreciate everything and all the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right, that wraps up the episode of Picture Blurfic for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Becker. She was so much fun, so smart, and just really challenges you to think in a completely different way. And we need people like that in our lives. And I'm so glad that she's doing all of that incredible work. And she pointed me in a completely different direction than what I was currently researching as far as eating disorders and and the science behind it and the policy implications of it, which we dug into in the episode, as you heard. So I'm going to have a lot of future guests um, on this topic and of other various issues that we touched on in the episode. And for further reading on food insecurity and eating disorder pathology, I will include several of Dr. Becker's recent research papers in the episode description for you all to have um, some more reading uh, reading material um, whenever you feel like it. So that about wraps up the episode. And as I always say to everyone listening, you know, be gentle with yourselves. Um, remember that the size of your jeans and your clothes does not dictate your worth. And even though your weight may change, your value doesn't. And I hope that you take that with you the rest of the week. Talk to you guys next time.